it's a lot of work doing what we're doing. A lot of work and a lot of stress. And it's hard to imagine many other missions where I would keep doing that and many of the other people here would keep doing that because it is, it's really hard what we're doing. It's like a manufacturing version of a tech unicorn. You know, those companies that just catch fire and grow like crazy. But instead of a bunch of people sitting and writing code, we have to actually physically make these products. And you're on a rocket. You better hang on. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. When I started this business two years ago, I had this dream that I wasn't quite sure if it was possible. The dream was that I would get to work alongside a team of leaders and not a team of followers. My dream was that when we started building a team, I wanted us to hire people that were creative, that that were critical thinkers, that were stubborn, that were independent, that were passionate, that were assertive, that were curious, that cared deeply about the work, and that were really making meaningful, independent contributions to make this mission come to life around the country. That was the dream. And what's so cool is just over two years into the business now, I can confidently say that the Path for Growth team is nine people, and every single one of those people is a leader. They are individuals that I deeply admire and respect and that I'm grateful to get to work with and learn from every single day. And one of those leaders that really his fingerprints are all over this business and all over every single thing that we're creating is Zach Estes. He's our COO, and you've probably heard him on this podcast before. Many of you have probably met him in person. He is truly one of the key contributors that makes Path for Growth happen every single day. And one of the things that I'm just so grateful for, and it's just such a joy in working with Zach, is that he is probably as passionate as anyone I've ever met about the topic of operational excellence. It's almost hilarious that when Zach sees a system or process run properly, the guy gets like giddy, right? And when he sees results being created in a manner that's predictable and repeatable, he just gets as excited as anyone I've ever seen. And so I went to Zach and I was like, okay, I think it would be so awesome if you shared a little bit of your perspective alongside someone else on this topic of operations, because I think it would really benefit our customers and our audience. And so I said, who's someone that you would like to talk to on the podcast? And it was like almost instantly he had an answer to that question. And the answer was today's guest, Andy Reith, because Andy is the COO of Origin Footwear. Now, maybe you've heard of Origin before. It's the company that was founded by Pete Roberts, who we've had on this podcast before, uh, but it is now also led in conjunction with Jocko Willink. You ever heard of Jocko Willink? And it is truly uh, an incredible mission-driven company that is focused on bringing manufacturing back to the United States. They make world-class products and their growth has just been absolutely insane. And what's so cool is Andy is one of the masterminds that is making that company operationally excellent. And he's someone that just like Zach shares a 
passion and deep-seated interest in the topic of effective operations. And so these two get into it today. I'm so excited for you to hear about this conversation. They get into Andy's background at Toyota, which is truly one of the benchmark companies for operational excellence. And then they get into some principles that really apply to every business, regardless of industry. So here's Zach Estes's conversation with Andy Reith. Man, Andy, where I wanted to get started in our conversation was how I came about who you are. Big Jocko fan. And through Jocko, uh, I was listening to an episode with Pete Roberts of Origin, who we've had on the podcast. And um, they just mentioned, it was just like this one little line of, yeah, we've got this lean guy, this guy from Toyota. His name is Andy. And then I just started diving. I went on YouTube, went on LinkedIn, tried to find out who's this Andy guy. So man, you got to tell me, what's the history? You start, not started, but you worked at Toyota for almost 10 years. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I actually, I had a professor in college and he just raved about how well Toyota does things, how great they are as a company, lean manufacturing, and that was my first exposure to it. And if it weren't for that class, like I probably never would have even interviewed with Toyota. And so I, I take this class. He's just got such enthusiasm for it. And, you know, to put it in a frame of reference, this guy was a GM tool and die maker before he went, got his mechanical engineering, uh, bachelor's, master's doctorate, and then became a professor. So like he knew automotive and he knew how GM did things. And so just his real world experience and enthusiasm for it really rubbed off. So I was like, you know, I, re- I should really look into this. And you know, from there, Toyota came to campus. They were interviewing for production engineers like a month after this class was done. And you know, so I signed up, got the interview, got the job offer. And it, it's almost like the story wrote itself. So that's how I got into Toyota in the first place. Dang, okay. And 10 years, is that accurate that you spent at Toyota? 11. 11. Yeah. So talk, like, what was that like? Did you start as an engineer and did you change trades within Toyota or did you stay in the engineering group? So I was hired as part of what they called the engineering training program, which was they were trying to start like a a management development program like uh, GE's Edison and Ford and all these different big companies have their versions of it. And there were 100 mechanical engineers that they hired all at the same time to go into this course. Um, We were the second class. The first class was 12. So they went from 12 to 100. And there were some serious growing pains with that. I bet. Um, but it was an incredible opportunity. We spent three months at the North American headquarters, which at the time was in Erlanger, Kentucky, uh, just over the river from Cincinnati, going through whatever training they could find to throw at us. And a lot of it at the time didn't make sense. Or like, I don't know what I'm going to use this for. So then when you get into the real jobs and you're like, oh, that's what this is about. You know, you end up retaking some of that training. So you know, I, I don't know if that was the best way to do it, but it exposed us to a ton of stuff, of really great stuff uh, right off the bat. And that was everything from how we commission equipment to Myers-Briggs, working with different groups, you know, so soft skills as well as some of the hard skills that we'd use in, as an engineer in the company. Cool. That's- so there was three months of that. And then we got our first job rotation where we all went our separate ways. I spent nine months in the assembly group at the biggest plant outside of Japan, which is in Georgetown, Kentucky. Um, so, of course, got some great experience there. And my next rotation was a year in the plastics department in Indiana. Um, and then so the, at the end of the two-year rotation, we got our permanent assignments. And I ended up in the production engineering group for 
large capital projects. So that North American headquarters group. So my group was, if there was any kind of big capital project from a quarter million up to, you know, entire new plants, which I was involved in, uh, we were the group that did that kind of stuff. So we were sort of the mercenaries of the company. We went wherever the work was. So we got to travel a lot, move different places, see, see all kinds of different things. So it was a really good experience because it lets you see, even though these are all Toyota factories, mm. they don't necessarily do things exactly the same. Like they're within a, a frame of reference, but different organizations will solve their challenges a little bit differently. Sure. What's one thing, particularly from like those early years that you can remember, or like a lesson that you learned that you still hold on to today? Is there a story there? Um, probably at that rotation in Georgetown, Kentucky, uh, I was assigned a supervisor there who, you know, even within the Toyota system, he was working his way into being promoted. And the thing, one of the things that Toyota really preaches is Genshi Genbutsu, which is go and see. If you have a question, don't talk about it in the office, go out and see where this is actually happening. And so this guy, uh, his name was Mike Myers. That's awesome. And uh, yeah. And uh, anytime I'd have a question, which there were a lot, he'd just say, let's go look at it. You know, no matter what he was doing, and especially the older I get, the more responsibilities I got within the company, I came to appreciate more, like this guy's got a lot of stuff going on. And he would drop everything just to say, let's go look at it and see it for yourself. And what's the value in that? Why did you think that's important? Why do you still think that's important? There are a lot of assumptions made from a distance that when you go and see it with your own eyes are not true. Hmm. And so a lot of poor decisions and mistakes and, and lost time happen by not spending that effort to just go and see what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. That's uh, that's a good word. You said Genshi Genbutsu? Genshi Genbutsu. So that's like a go and see whenever. So a quick little context on my uh, career. I started as a manufacturing engineer with titanium extrusions and, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And there was starting, you know, kind of like the lean manufacturing, a little bit of like Six Sigma stuff going on and conversations just around Toyota, like Japanese words. And so often we'd hear something like Kaizen or Gimba or go to the Gimba. And so just hearing these words kind of brings me back to my manufacturing days. Yep. So one other small tidbit about my background uh, the reason I got into manufacturing right out of college and went to study for manufacturing engineering, uh, one of those reasons was my dad worked at the Toyota plant in San Antonio. Uh, he helped start that one up back in 04, 05, somewhere around there, and started started building Tundras. And was a part of the, I think, the stamping or tool and die team, or, or I'm, I'm not totally sure, but that was just a like that was my middle school, uh, high school years, that kind of time frame, early high school years, and. I can just remember like the stories he would come home with or us having barbecues with 75 Japanese folks who just came over from Japan and them doing, you know, some sort of event at the plant. And so I, I kind of grew up on the outskirts of seeing this Toyota thing happen. And so it's just so interesting of like, I was able to go and see it, so to speak. And so I have this little, little finite bit of understanding of what my dad meant by those things, what, what manufacturing means to Taichi Ono. And like, whenever I'm reading the Toyota production system, 1973 handbook or whatever, like I can see like, oh, I see what that meant whenever I'm thinking about a, a Japanese guy in our backyard and, and 
just thinking about how he's talking about things and it was so interesting. So it's fun to talk to you about this and, and kind of hear your perspective on these things. One of the things that reminds me of Genshi Gimbutsu, Genshi Gimbutsu, you um, actually, it. you're you're at Origin, you're at that studio right now. And I was watching an Origin HD uh, video. And one of the things that you said was something along the lines of the last thing you want to do is go about making changes without understanding the process. And that feels like that same lesson that you just gave us. Is that right? Yeah, they're, they're closely tied. There's another principle I sort of like. It's not necessarily Toyota related, but it, it's called Chesterton's fence. And the idea is, you know, you come ac- you're walking through the woods and you come across the fence and there are certain people that say, well, this doesn't make any sense. Let's tear it down. And then there are other people that say, well, obviously this was put here for a reason. Let's try to understand why. We might still end up tearing it down, but let's at least understand what's going on first. Yeah. That's good. So there's, it, you can cause a lot of problems jumping to conclusions and just making assumptions. So yeah. It, that definitely pays off to spend a little bit of time digging in. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things Jocko talks about. Very few decisions are truly crucial. Life and death, you have to make a decision right now. And sometimes you can hedge your bets and say, we know we want to move this direction. So we're going to start going that direction without fully committing to that direction. So it, it, there's definitely some nuance there, but uh, it really all ties together. Understand what things are happening at the uh, the closest level to the activity. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so let's give a little bit of context of what you're doing now, where you are now. You you kind of came from Toyota, grew up in Toyota with engineering, and that was how many years ago was that? When did you leave Toyota? So the way I got involved with Origin was that first podcast that Pete was on with Jocko. Oh, wow. At the time, yeah, at the time, uh, Toyota was going through a whole big reorganization and my group was moving down the road, but it wasn't where I wanted to live with my family. You know, we, we live in Ohio and we always wanted to live. My wife and I both went to Ohio State. Our family's all from the area. <laughs> we knew that's where we wanted to be. So I spent 10 years moving all over the country, just traveling nonstop. Um, I spent time in San Antonio spent three years in San Diego slash Tijuana crossing the border every day for the plant there, Mm -hmm. Canada, Indiana, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi. So trying to get back to where we wanted to raise a family. And so I left Toyota in July of 2017. And then a month later, Pete was on Jocko podcast. And so when I left Toyota, I decided to start doing some lean manufacturing consulting because what I saw at Toyota was really Americans doing this. It wasn't a Japanese thing. Yeah. Like, so I, I had a belief that America could be competitive in manufacturing, but you have to do it this way. You have to be elite when it comes to how you run your manufacturing operations. So I started doing the consulting thing. I was already a Jocko fan at the time. I started listening to Jocko from the start, like with the, the Tim Ferriss podcast. Yeah, for sure. When he Same. first got out there when Extreme Ownership launched. So I was already listening. I was tied in. And Pete was on there and he was talking about what he's trying to do, bring back American manufacturing. And so I sent him an email. I hadn't even finished the whole podcast yet. <laughs> and I said, hey, I just started consulting. This is what I do. I'd love to come up to Maine for a week for free, you know, just to come up, see what you're doing, see if I can help with anything. And then, you know, the relationship grew out of that. So I, I vividly remember like where I was when I got the email back when he was like, yeah, come on up. That's awesome. <laughs> so I was uh, actually, I was getting ready to go to an Ohio State football game and I'm sitting there and the email comes through. I was like, all right, here we go. Because I didn't tell him this at the time, but I didn't even have a paying client yet. 
So <laughs> I was still new in the whole consulting <laughs> thing. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's how I got connected. And then so to hear my name thrown out on Jocko podcast a few years later, that was uh, a fun day. Yeah, I bet so. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, I got involved. I was consulting and started becoming more and more involved until eventually they wouldn't let me leave. They offered to let me run the footwear division. So that's when I became a full-time Origin employee. But I, I was involved in a lot of stuff through the company's growth, both on the nutrition side and the main apparel operations. Uh, I've been down to the North Carolina factory a couple times to try to help with a few things as they go through all that because it's a massive project. But been all over the place within the company. Yeah. So I'm uh, some people uh, watching and some people who are part of the path for growth membership um, will know that I'm a huge origin fan so much so that customers have given me like uh, origin jeans or origin t-shirt, like just different things from, from origin. So talk to us a little bit about what origin manufactures. So I'm sitting in our boot factory right now, which we also have our media team here. So we're making leather footwear, leather belts, uh, and leather wallets at the moment, we have plans to get into much more modern age, advanced footwear. Uh, we're working on an athletic type boot for next fall, working with some real professionals trying to get this kind of stuff going. Footwear, especially, has such a long development timeline. So we're just finally just starting to get ahead of the curve on that with what we want to do in the future. So that's what we make here. Uh, about five minutes down the road is our main apparel so they're doing all the jujitsu stuff, the geese, the compression. I think they might be doing the fight shorts there. And the, for the sample size, some of it's going to go to North Carolina. So everything's always changing. They had made all the jeans there. Now some jeans are in North Carolina. Some are here. Cool. Um, and then, of course, that building's where we weave our fabrics. So one of the, the few weaving facilities left in the entire country. That's nuts. That's so wild. Uh yeah, I'm it, kind of what you were saying, like bringing American manufacturing back and kind of doing something excellent with it. Not not just like we make a product or a thing and give it to the customer base. I feel like Origins representing like, no, we're bringing American, American manufacturing back to the type of American manufacturing that inspired Toyota to become what it is. That's what I feel like is happening at Origin. Do you feel like that's an accurate statement? Yeah. Uh- I mean, certainly people are probably sick of hearing it here. And I, I try not to do this all the time, but like at Toyota, this is how we would handle this. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, we're not, I'm not trying to take Toyota and combine origin on the Toyota side of things. Yeah. Like I have to figure out what does Toyota do? What are the principles and how does that apply to the company? Because we're not a multi-billion dollar automotive company. We're in a whole different market with completely different challenges, but which of those principles are most valuable to where we are as a company? And it is rapidly changing. So that first time that I came here, we had 12 production employees. And now I think we're pushing 400. (laughs) What was the timeline? What did you say? 2017 to now? Five years ago this month was my first trip. 12 production employees. That's nuts. Okay. Uh, so you just mentioned something. Whenever you're talking about like Toyota-based uh, Toyota principles or principles that you learned at Toyota and you're applying them here and training folks on it, what are some of the, I, I know from some of our customers and some of our membership, uh, folks in our membership, often what we hear is just like the idea of principle-based thinking is its own skill. It's like a thing that you have to learn and strengthen and grow and particularly get good at applying it. 
So what, is, what are some like challenges or problems that you've seen when training your team? Speaking of which, specifically your team, how large is that? I've got about 25 people right now making footwear. Cool. Awesome. So 25 folks, you're training them on principles uh, that you learned at Toyota and, and trying to develop a culture around that. What are some challenges that you've experienced with trying to communicate principle-based thinking and applying some of those principles? Well, so one of the things that we try to do is I've got a full day fundamentals of operational excellence. So it used to be called fundamentals of lean manufacturing and nearly every single origin employee in Maine has gone through that. Um, and not necessarily right when they start, there's some challenges with the timing, but it, we think it's important that everybody gets that classroom based training, which also has a heavy hands-on part of it so that they at least get on the same page with what some of these principles are. And then when it comes time to implementing them in production, I feel like it's, a, it's starting to get a little bit easier because of the size. And we've started to get some of these systems ingrained. Uh, one of them is single piece flow. The mm-hmm. idea that you don't want to batch product. And so the, the footwear production line is set up where we only batch the very first job, which is cutting the leather, because you have to put an entire 25 square foot piece of leather on a table. And that's way more than one boot. So doesn't make sense to only cut one. You might as well cut four or five, whatever you're going to get out of it. But then from that point on, the customer name is on that pair of boots. So as it gets stitched together, as it gets lasted and the soles put on and finished and goes in the box, you know, the, the people online get to see this customer is getting this boot and it's coming through one at a time. And that helps with having things flow. That's one of the biggest things that one of the ways, or I guess one of the principles that probably I think is the most important for people that might not be in manufacturing is the idea of flow. You Mm -hmm. want things, you don't want anything to stop. You don't want to have to wait on information or wait on people or wait for any reason. So if things flow, whatever that means to you, that's going to be successful. You want things to happen quickly. One of the, the tools that I created here at origin is for our customer service team. And I'm assuming most companies have a customer service group. What I did is I took the, backlog of boot orders and they come in first in first out but i had to create a reporting tool where uh, if a customer calls into customer service they say hey this is my order number when am i going to get my product they can immediately pull up this website type in the order number and it's going to say your boots are approximately seven days away from production so they can give them a pretty good window of you know your boots will probably arrive in two to three weeks cool Um, and, and that's not too bad. Like we, we've had some pretty long lead times, which is a great problem to have, but certainly that makes customer services challenge. Um, but just that flow, they, they don't have to ask me or somebody on my team a question, you know, when are these going to get done? Cause that's what was happening. Yeah. <laughs> they'd, they'd have to wait for my response to tell the customer service team to tell the customer. And it's just adding extra steps and delay. So to make that process flow as quickly as possible with good information is a huge help. I think that I the exam I love the example that you just gave because you're manufacturing boots and you didn't even use an example of manufacturing used customer service, which I think applies to almost literally any business, whether you're a tangible making something, whether you're a service-based business like mowing, mowing lawns or a coaching business or designing uh, houses or architecture or anything like that. I feel like that that principle applies a flow. You can see that how that could stop or delay information flow is even like a, a lean tactic or a principle. Yeah. And that was one of the things, if you read Taichi writings and books, 
he talks about flows and rivers and, you know, the symbology of water hmm. and you want things to flow. You want to get rid of all those obstacle obstacles that keep things from flowing. Yeah. It's uh, something that, repeatedly comes up with him. It's very important. I like kind of adopting a manufacturing model and at a high level, just kind of applying that manufacturing model to different types of businesses. So restaurants, hospitals, um, healthcare clinics, that's, I'm kind of giving you a preview of my career post manufacturing, but then even I started dabbling with digital world. So, you know, content media, any, any sort of digital business, so to speak, something that's totally done on your laptop. And some of the things that I started to realize, uh, there's some like fundamental things that are happening in, happening in the physical world that you almost never talk about except for at a manufacturing site that's practicing some version of lean, um, some version of continuous improvement, some version of the Toyota production system. And so um, I started just to think about like, what are some of those principles? What are some of those fundamental elements one of them was that I that I kind of realized was that like you need to make work visible, and that you like you can't hide things or sweep things under the rug or or even like lose track of where things are. So like the example you just gave was make the information visible so that the team member who needs that information can quickly access it and do what they need to with it, rather than saying, "Oh, I need to call Andy," and maybe he's busy or in a meeting right now, so I'll wait an hour. Then the customer has to wait an hour, so to speak. Do you feel like you've seen a lot of that play out at Origin or even with other clients that you've worked with? Yeah, it's one of those things that I think people have a hard time understanding until they see it work. Agreed. Uh, yeah, it's certainly some examples that I give when I give my training is the idea of, I'm sure a lot of companies deal with having to do inventory counts to make sure that they have raw materials and especially dealing with COVID the past couple of years and supply chain problems. Like that's how I started here at Origin is making sure that we had the leather and the soles that we needed to keep production going. Hmm. And it required me going out and physically counting all kinds of things. And we haven't been able to completely visualize everything, but over time we've been able to make things visible where you can see, yes, we've got plenty of the stock or we're running a little bit low um, and we don't do a great job of it yet. It's tricky with some of the things that we're dealing with, but you know, if you can look at a wall of product from 20 feet away and know whether you have enough of a material, like you're good. If you have to open up a cabinet and start counting things and, and dig into that, like I think people really underestimate what a time suck that is uh, that you spend. And that's not a value added activity. That's another thing you can get into a lot is recognizing value versus waste. Counting is generally not value added. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's go there. What's, what's the distinction between value added uh, activity and waste? So value add is anything the customer is willing to pay for based on some kind of transformation. So in manufacturing, if you're stitching the boot together, obviously they want the boot to be stitched together. You're physically changing something. Um, in a service-based industry, it can, it's a little more ambiguous, but you know, you think of like Disney world, when you go to Disney world, they transform you through emotions and different things like that. And mm. that's what people pay for. So value is what people are willing to pay for because you did something, some way to make them feel or process the product. Uh, the, the cust our customer doesn't care necessarily that we have to ship from Maine to San Diego if that's where they live. Like they don't care that we're a thousand, two thousand miles away. Right. We have to do that, but they do care that the product is assembled properly and looks good and 
and it meets our expectations. So waste is anything that it really does not add value. Within that, you have non-value added, um, but necessary. So sometimes those quality systems, like creating standard work documents to make sure that you have a good repeatable process. The customer doesn't care that you have to do that, but it's what allows that value to happen consistently and deliver on those uh, promises. So most things generally are waste. When you really dig down to it, there's very little value add. Um, I read a study one time that estimated in American manufacturing, only 10% of work done is value added. Oh, oh man, that just hearing that number, my mind just goes, Whoa, okay, that sucks. We need to fix that. Yeah, and, and even at Toyota, they talk about, I, I want to say 40% was a good process. Yeah. If you hit 40% value add, that is really good. And when you compare 40 versus 10, like that's not a 30% difference. That's a 400% right. difference. Right. So, you know, I'm trying to, th- how do you prioritize that versus things flowing? I, I think you want it to flow first and then you figure out how to take the waste out of it. But um, that's another big part of the training is trying to get our people to recognize value versus waste. Yeah. Because these 25 people I have working on the line, you know, I'm not going to be out there every day watching every nuanced detail and movement, but they are. So if they can recognize and bring that up and say, you know, hey, why are we doing it this way? We could change this and, and it will save 10 seconds. Um, so it's trying to instill that into the culture as well as something that we're trying to do. That's cool. How do you, um, I'm so interested in how, and I think this would apply to almost every business. How would you encourage your team to innovate on the product? So the reason I'm asking that is because it's almost the question of like, how do you figure out what is valuable and what is not valuable? Like if you're going to make a change to the product, how are you going to know if that's valuable or not? Yeah. And that's, it's really challenging, but ultimately it comes down to the customer, Hmm. the voice of the customer. So we, we tend to do some small changes and in some cases we'll just document boots where a change was made and check to see is there negative reaction. Uh, there are other cases too where we're trying something out and we'll tell the customer like, hey, this is your order. We made a change. We think it's better. Um, are you willing to test this out for us and give us feedback? But you know, ultimately, if the customer doesn't like the change, it was a bad change. So to me, it's one of the more challenging things that we've struggled with is how do we get a good, consistent voice of the customer feedback and let that influence what we're doing with our manufacturing process. Yeah, so that's, that sounds like the principle, right? Every business needs some some version of having, or hearing rather, the voice of their customer. Yeah, you need that feedback loop. Yeah, that's good. And hopefully you get that feedback loop before it's negatively impacting the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, for sure. I don't know if Origin has like a stated mission or stated core values, but some of the things that we teach at Path for Growth is like a a mission. It just answers the question, why do we exist? Core values answers the question, what do we stand for? Whenever we're thinking about our team or our business, we're going to draw a line around this company, this team, and say, these are the things that we stand for, meaning we also don't stand for all these other things. There are things that we're going to draw a line in the sand and not cross. And so when I think about origin, there's some sort of core value there that's like, we're American made, period, and to the best that we can, right? As long as we can find a reliable supplier or a supplier, period, in America, we're going to be American made. So you're holding that kind of uh, guardrail, but then also saying voice of the customer 
have you have y'all experienced any tension of like we could serve the customer better if uh, we we move past some of these guardrails that we've put up? You know, I think the the biggest challenge that we've faced with the the customer responses is it's expensive to manufacture in America, and, and I'm some people get that. Uh, but there's certainly a large percentage of the population that are like, yeah, let's let's do this in America. This should be American made. And then they see the bill and they're like, well, well, maybe we tone that down a little bit. And that's something that we haven't been able to compromise on or we're not going to compromise on. Like we're trying to do this as efficiently as possible. And hopefully as we continue to rebuild things, we can drop costs with volumes and frankly doing things better. Hmm. Uh, to me, that's why the only way to be competitive is to be really, really good at it because we're competing with people that are in some cases, literally slave labor and some of the better cases making dollars, single dollars an hour, two, three dollars an hour in some of these other countries. And that's not just the labor that goes into the finished product. That's what goes into the fabric when it's woven. That's what goes into the farming of the product. You know, so it, it trickles on down the line and you know, that's okay. Some people aren't going to invest in the American-made product, hmm. um, and they're, we hope to, to gain them as a customer as we get better and are able to be more competitive. But if not, we're not going to buy denim from China just so that we can grow that customer base. Um, and that's certainly probably the most, you know, we say we start with people and American-made without compromise. We actually had a, a whole team summit back in June and we probably spent two hours arguing and discussing what does that mean without compromise? Does that mean there's absolutely nothing like we're going to start growing the rubber trees in America? Like, no, obviously there is some kind of cutoff point. Yeah. Um, you know, so we had a lot of discussion on that, but you know, everything that goes into the boots and, and our products is sourced from an American company. That's not to say that we're going down. We can't go down to every single tiny little detail. Like, well, where'd that come from? Sure. Because um, it's just not feasible. And but you know, there we we talk about the Barry Amendment with the military, mm-hmm. and luckily that's been able to keep quite a few apparel companies alive because military requires very compliant products, which means made in America. Um, so we've been able to tie into a lot of those groups. But with footwear, they made exceptions to that. Like wow. footwear is so so difficult. So many of these components are not done here that you know what? That's the very amendment doesn't apply. So especially as we get into these newer products, it's gonna cause some challenges because there's uh, one of the things we're looking at right now, there is literally nobody in America making this product. Wow. Zero. A couple companies have played with it here and there and uh, I've called some companies to see if they'd be interested in partnering and they're like, you can't be done. So but, you know, that commitment to the American supply chain is certainly one of the core values. Yeah. What else What else do you think, like, what would describe some of those um, kind of line in the sand core values or guardrails that Origin has? Are there any others that stand out? Maybe even just in the way in which you uh, work, not necessarily an external uh, marketing thing. I think there's a there's an unwritten expectation within the company that when you come, you come to get stuff done with the, the pace that the company's growing and really completely grass roots, greenfield type setup. You know, we don't have an ERP system. 
we don't have a lot of these systems that bigger, more established companies have. So when people come here, they need to be able to, to just put their head down and get to work. Uh, there's not a lot of people that can float by and make it because there's just so much to do. In addition, we really need people that are able to build these systems. Uh, if you have somebody that's coming from an established company where they operate within an already established system, mm. you know they might do great if that's there, but you pull that away from them and say, okay, now you need to replicate that and replicate it to our specific situation. Uh, that's a much more challenging problem. So I think the, the people that we've built here are you know, the ones that make it are the ones that can do that. Hmm. And it's, it's definitely within the company, you know, we've got our own culture and vibe of, of that kind of person. Yeah. Dang. I'm just thinking about your journey, listening to the Jocko podcast and how much like cultural alignment there must be at origin and how great of a fit that must be for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And actually, um, so when I was still at Toyota was when the first echelon front muster happened. I was living in San Diego, crossing the border into Tijuana. And, and I asked Toyota HR if I could send my engineering team to the first muster. And so I sent them the agenda and some information and they're like, oh, this, I don't know, this seems a little <laughs> aggressive. And I'm like, you, you don't, they're so completely entwined as to how Toyota develops leaders and dash on front principles. I mean, it's just, complete overlap. It's the, the textbook on how to develop and create a culture where leadership is valued and, and developed. Uh, cool. So that it was disappointed. I didn't get to go to that, but you know, there's such an alignment there, especially Toyota does. And that's one of the things they talk about is, you know, their, their value is developing people. Hmm. They just happen to also make cars. Yeah, that's nuts. Okay. So uh, let's talk about a people a little bit. You kind of went there when you were talking about the product of origin, I'm thinking, okay, so America, we're like there are there are lines in the sand that we're not going to cross. We've we've written those down, uh, put those out there, and even communicated them to our customer base. Um, one of those is we're bringing American manufacturing back home, and we're going to try our like we're going to do everything that we can to even continue to do that. And we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna break that. So whenever you're communicating with customers, there's a little bit of this like investment into the mission. Like they get to come along and be a part of that. And it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to hear from you on this. Like, is, has Pete done that intentionally? Like, what is Pete the driver behind that? Is he a media machine or is he a marketing machine? What's the, oh, yeah. what's the, yeah. So, what's the thoughts <laughs> around that? Like, he's definitely a storyteller. And without that, without telling the story of what it is we're doing and doing, communicating it very effectively, this might not all work because mm-hmm. we, we're starting to transition into a company that has shorter lead times trying to have things in stock. But, you know, January 1st of this year, our boot lead time was 16 weeks. Wow. You can't tell me there are really that many people that are willing to wait 16 weeks for boots without knowing what it is that they're supporting and the the mission that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, so, you know, for me, that was crazy uh, like as every night it's like 16 weeks how are we ever gonna even do this uh, <laughs> are you gonna make a dent in that so yeah the the customers and when we make mistakes and those happen the customers generally are understanding we're, we're gonna try to make it right but they're not just tossing us by the side and saying i'm, I'm done with this i i gave it a shot it wasn't exactly what i wanted and perfect um so we certainly get that 
people feel they're part of this and hmm. by buying the products and purchasing, they're part of the mission, which I think really, really resonates across the country. And I know a big part of why I went to Toyota and the lean stuff anyways, I grew up in the Rust Belt. Hmm. So I saw the same thing in the 90s, factories shut down across the entire state, across the entire Midwest, um, you know, big, just empty buildings, stuff rusting away and, and the impact that that had on the communities. You know, it's devastated. An automotive plant shuts down and you're talking thousands of people directly impacted and then hundreds of thousands potentially indirectly impacted. You know, it'll completely destroy a city by having right. one employer shut down. So, you know, I, I saw that. So certainly the made in America thing, even though I, I got my experience from a Japanese car company, it was, it's one of the driving things that I look at and it's, it's what makes the extra work, I think, a little easier to take is knowing that there is something bigger involved. This isn't just a job to, to make some money and support my family, but this is a much bigger mission. Yeah. And I always like to, like, whenever I hear something like that, my mind always goes to, you know, a paycheck is good. Like it's a good, like to support your family and to provide and to deliver value. Like in this, in this functional, a job is a worthy thing to have that type of thought, but then it's also good to, attach that to a greater reason and purpose as to why you're doing that job, why you're um, commuting, why you're staying at this place and not going somewhere else. I feel like that, that definitely connects. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work doing what we're doing a lot, a lot of work and a lot of stress. And it's hard to imagine many other missions Hmm. where I would keep doing that. And many of the other people here would keep doing that. Uh, because it is, it's really hard what we're doing. Yeah, um, it's like a manufacturing version of a tech unicorn. You know, those companies that just catch fire and grow like crazy. And but instead of a bunch of people sitting and writing code, we have to actually physically make these products. And you're on a rocket. You better hang on. Yeah, that's wild. I feel like Origin, and and this probably comes from Pete a little bit. Origin does a really good job at communicating that. We've talked a little bit about that. What have you particularly learned being a part of the Origin team? about communication? Like what have you picked up from communication principles or techniques or tactics for communicating um, and teaching people about lean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, It's definitely given me an opportunity to get in front of a lot more people and try to take the feedback and the questions that they have that come up in training and try to think about how do I need to reframe this? Hmm. And so each time that that happens, I'm forced to come up with another example or, or another way to try to communicate with that person. If they, if they don't understand, you know, okay, that way's blocked. Let's, let's try to, you know, take a different approach. So it's certainly just been a, a good opportunity to keep, force myself to keep thinking, how hmm. do I get through with all these people in an effective way? And I'm constantly looking for that. This didn't work. Uh, what are we going to do different next time? That debrief of every interaction. And there's certainly been plenty of interactions where, you know, I've left a conversation uh, apparently with a completely different understanding from the person across the table and, you know, dealing with those implications really in a leadership role and trying to figure out how to manage those. So, so that that's something I personally am trying to improve upon a lot. And so JP did always up here two weeks ago and, you know, they talk about the read back all the time. Uh, when you have a conversation, have that person read it back to you. 
And it's one of those things as a, a true engineer introvert, like I don't want to extend the conversation any longer than I have to. <laughs> yeah. So it's something that I'm, I'm working on to try to improve those communication skills. That's awesome. That's super awesome. Well, how do you feel like, um, how else have you grown as an individual, as a leader, as a contributor to the mission? Um, how else have you grown since being at Origin? So going back to the systems, hmm. um, I've actually forced myself to learn Python programming. Wow. And, and Google Sheets and all these integrations because we don't have an ERP. We don't have any inventory management. We don't have anything. Um, you know, we've got a couple things for shipping the product that we pay for off the box, out of the box. So it, it's forced me to develop these hard skills to do things that I never would have had to do as a mechanical engineer. So I'm basically a software engineer about five hours a week and then <laughs> doing everything else the rest of the time. I, I literally, two hours ago, I was just changing my code for how our order tags are printed so that they're communicated clearly to all the people on the line and they know how to make each pair of boots. Yeah. How would you, what would you say? So let's, let's act like Andy's not in that role and you're consulting origin and you hear about the COO who's contributing to, is that the role you're, you play for origin footwear? Yeah. Okay. So you hear about the COO contributing to uh, writing code and you're a 30 ish person team you know, I can, I can hear someone saying, oh, you should, you should probably hire that out. But what is the, like, what's the principle? Why, why do it yourself? Why try it yourself? Is there, is there value in that? I certainly think there is value in doing it yourself. It, it would be much easier to just hire somebody, but that costs money. And at the time that I recognized this was needed, we didn't have time or money to go through hiring somebody. So it was just the fact of, like this will greatly benefit the team and the operations and, and it's going to be rough to get it going. But when it is, it's going to be worth it. And so it's just that I didn't know anything about Python programming, but I saw the need. I figured that was the best tool to do it and sit down and get after it, you know, make stuff happen. And it, it, I, I don't ever show this code to a real programmer because they just laugh in my face, but <laughs> it works. Yeah. One of the other principles I kind of I kind of harp on, and, and my team will know this, and um, probably some of our customers will too. But everything requires maintenance. Everything, every system, every product, every um, relationship, every customer, everything requires maintenance. So, how do you balance that? Okay, we need to innovate. We have to try new things. We have to bring on those new things. But then we can't just like spread ourselves thin. Have you ever experienced that at Origin? Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the, the big discussion points of this summit that we had back in June. We were starting to get into a variety of products that might not be for our core demographic. Um, you know, we had these scarves on the website for women. We're not a women's product company. We might be in the future, but the summit as a group forced us to get together and be like, who is the origin customer right now and over the next couple of years? Because all these other things are distractions. Hmm. And until you do these core things really well, don't mess with the other stuff. Um, and it's very easy to get distracted by the shiny things. And I think just knowing that that is a possibility, especially if you're inclined to do that, you know, you can start chasing after it for a little bit, but at some point you need to stop and say, is this really value added? You know, is this going to help the group, the company, or am I just chasing something because it looks cool? 
Yeah, that's that's a great point. Whenever you're talking about that, some of the things that immediately came to mind for me was there's a distinction between manufacturing and almost like a manufacturing line and a job shop. Job shops do custom orders. One product is like all products are completely unique. There is no uh, skew. There's just, you know, unique products and orders. And then you have a manufacturing line where you say, these are the limited number of products that we're going to uh, commit ourselves to, that we're going to represent, build, manufacture, whatever. And we're just going to do those really, really well. Do you feel like that's an accurate kind of dichotomy? Yeah, I think that's fair. I've seen some job shops through the consulting that might turn that on its head a little bit. Yeah, um, tell me about I've that. Because I've seen some really, really well-run places that would consider themselves job shops. And they did it through flexible setups. Um, one in particular, every single machine was on wheels. And so they weren't doing one, literally one-off, but it was small uh, yeah. government-contracted jobs. And they could move every single machine, rearrange it for what they needed, and have it up and running in a few hours. You know, so they they can move everything around and adapt to the situation very quickly. Um, another one that I went to did a great job with that visual control. So mm. everything was a a job, and they had this. I bet it was a hundred feet long. This hallway that they put that um, tile uh, plastic that you use for showers, and so yeah. it's a grid system. And so they had all the possible processes across the length of the hallway. And then they had each job, you know, move on this piece of paper on the board as the job progressed so that everybody could see what was going on, what's coming next, and just really raising awareness to everything. So even a, a job shop, is they still have a lot of the principles that they can pull on to do things really well. Yeah, for sure. That's whenever I'm talking to, uh, you know, an architecture business or many service-based businesses where they have a client that they're solving a very specific type of problem. In my mind, I kind of just go and say, okay, they're a job shop. They're not a manufacturing line. They don't just have one product. They, they're they doing a little bit something custom for every little thing. And that just kind of helps me uh, segment them and put them in a box and, and try to help them specifically. So I guess the thing there is if you were, if you were giving advice on, so you said like flexible setups, visual controls, what are some things you would tell service-based businesses that maybe they could adopt for to like continuously improve? kind of adopt some Toyota principles, adopt some lean principles? So one of the most common lean tools is value stream mapping. And uh, it's sort of funny because at Toyota, they don't call it value stream mapping, or at least my group didn't. Yeah, We called it material and information flows. Hmm. Uh, So when I got out of Toyota, I kept seeing this value stream mapping. I'm like, what is that? Do I not really know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh no, that's what this is. And it's a really great tool. It takes some time to, to go through the process, but... It helps you visualize how material or in a service-based company, most likely just information, how it flows. And you start to see this web of things being interconnected and back and forth and arrows going all these different directions. And then when you finish it, you sit back and you're like, that looks like a mess. So it gives you that first reference point of, okay, how do we simplify this? How do we make it cleaner? And through that, you know, your results are going to be faster and and higher quality and less information lost because of the telephone game and, and have a total better output. Is that a version of going and seeing, do you think? Absolutely. Because to create that value stream map, you have to talk to all of those people 
yeah. and all the positions to understand you, know, you get an order in, where does that go? And then you talk to that person. Okay, what do you do with this? Well, this goes to this person, but this goes to this person. And really quickly, you see it devolve into a big spider web. But to know that, you have to talk to those people because yeah. you know it'd be easy for the the boss, the manager, to sit in a room and say, "Well, this is how it works." And when you actually go and talk to those people, you're like, "Well, that's not quite what actually happens." Yeah, for sure. Dang, Andy, this is awesome. I think one of the things I want I want to just kind of leave with, and and we'll jump to. I think we have one question in the chat from Ben, but one thing that I'd like to just hear you talk about is: Have you ever experienced? other organizations that have the type of impact or mission that origin has? And what would you say the distinction is between origin and other companies? Um, and how might you encourage people to be more like origin in that missional way? I'm not sure that I've seen another company outside of Toyota with such a mission based focus as origin. They, they all are trying to accomplish a goal, but it's obviously they're trying to fill a need and mm. run a profitable company um, from the ones that I've seen personally. You know, Toyota, they, they talk about their core values are respect for people and continuous improvement. Mm. And one of the things I like to talk about, you know, Toyota is an incredible company. I have absolutely nothing bad to say about my time there. And if it were, if it were in the right location, I'd probably still be there. But, you know, the, the family over the job was the, uh, the choice of the time. But, during the 2008 recession, I was at the plant in Indiana and I saw the company pay, I think they had 5,000 employees at the time wow. to not make vehicles. They shut the entire factory down. All the Sequoia production, no, the, all the Tundra t- production went to Texas. They left the Sequoia there. But for two months, the line did not run and they paid everybody to come in, sweep the floors, paint walls, do improvement activities, exercise and do all these things. So, you know, that commitment to their employees was really strong to see because, you know, obviously you have to have a strong enough company where you can do that. Right. Uh, Most companies are not financially healthy enough to do something like that, Mm. but they were, and they actually did it. You know, nobody, it's funny if you Google uh, Ford layoffs or sorry, Toyota layoffs, what comes up is Mm. Ford, GM, all these other companies, like you're going to have a really hard time finding any new story about Toyota layoffs. And so that, you know, that mission of commitment to the people, uh, making sure that they have good jobs and they also give them those growth and development opportunities. That's the only place outside of origin that I've seen a a company so mission and values based. What do you feel like is one step people can take to become more like origin or Toyota in that way? It's one of those things that if you're, if you're the owner of the company, you have to, hopefully you, you've already set your company up based on some kind of mission. Hmm. that you're, I feel like this would be a hard thing to do. Like, well, I've already got a a car wash and now I'm going to make a commitment to something else. You know, Hmm. it's, it's one of those things that if you're thinking about starting a business, think about what do you value and what do you really believe in? And then you can build something around that. I'm I'm not sure how you do it the other direction. That's not to say you can't, I just don't know those kind of values. I, I think the commitment to a community is something most people really can relate to. Hmm. Uh, I would assume most people recognize that having good jobs in a community makes a healthier community. So if you're able to do that, uh, if you run a healthy business and take care of your people, 
then your community will be better and everyone's lives will be better. And you know, that really it ties into the whole, that's why made in America is important mm-hmm. is so that those communities are strong and people each have the opportunity to take care of themselves and their family. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, awesome. Let's um, kind of pivot over. Uh, it looks like Ezekiel gave us a question to you. Ezekiel asks, what is one step you would recommend a service business take to pursue lean ideas? It's really hard to, to pick one thing without understanding what it is. So, <laughs> you're you're uh, taking your own medicine there, huh? You have to. Part of the reason that lean failed in the 90s is because companies tried to f- pick out like, oh, I like this tool. I like mm. this. And that's fine if you understand the culture behind it. And if you don't have the buy-in from the people involved, the tools won't matter. You might see short-term improvements. And, and that's what happened as people tried to copy Toyota. Yeah. And you know that. so the machine that changed the world was the book that came out in the 80s that really introduced the world to lean manufacturing. And then companies tried to copy it. And they missed out on the people part of it. And yeah. so it's been rebranded as operational excellence, more or less. That's my take on it. Sure. As they, they, it operational excellence is lean manufacturing plus a renewed focus on people and culture and leadership, the soft part of things. So you have to have the right culture and you have to have an understanding of what those tools should actually be used for. So really the education is the first part. If you just try to pick something, you're trying to take the quick and easy win, you know, that's probably, you might get that quick and easy win or you could screw things up and it's not going to sustain. And that's where the value is. It's not that initial 10%. It's doing another 10% on top of that 10 and that exponential growth. Do you have a resource that you'd point people to for, for education? Well, I have my own training course. Yeah, plug it. <laughs> so, of course, uh, I've got a teachable course that I created. It's called OpEx Online. That's opexonline.teachable.com. And so that's basically the full-day course that I give to people. And it's how I've tried to to arrange the material in a way that I thought was most valuable to most people. And it's very introductory, but it goes through a lot of material. There's a few really great books that I recommend after the, I give the training. Uh, the the Toyota Way by Jeffrey Liker hmm. is actually one that Toyota gave me when I started at the company. They're like, wow. read this. This will be a good kickstart. Of course, any of the Taichi Ono books are great. And once you start getting into a little deeper level, there's another book called The Birth of Lean. Hmm. And this is actually interviews with the, the Japanese guys in the 50s and 60s. And they talk about the real challenges they faced. Because the, the training and the books that you might get nowadays, it's a very sanitized version of it. Like, oh, this happened and then this, and it's very clean. And, and so that book is a little more like, oh, we screwed a lot of stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> this was not a clean, easy, quick, quick thing. And one of the things I really took out of that book is they kept mentioning this healthy tension. And they were intentionally trying to create a healthy tension between groups. And so... It's trying to balance that, like everybody's on the same team, but at the same time, you know, the quality department has different incentives than the production group. Hmm. And how do you have this healthy tension and maybe sometimes competition amongst groups while still keeping them on the same page for the ultimate goal? So uh, those are probably the three most recommended books that I, I've come across. 
That's awesome. Thanks for that. Okay. And then uh, from Ben, what is, oh, this is pretty tactical and specific. So, and and maybe uh, we'll go into it. So from Ben, what is a make or break trait uh, that you look for in a leader to choose for spearheading a new, or that you would look for in a leader to choose for spearheading a new manufacturing line or plant? Oh, probably pointing fingers. And that that's Jocko's taking ownership. It's so tempting as a human to blame somebody else for problems. And if somebody has a, a trait of and a, a history of doing that, they're not going to take ownership of making the project work. Hmm. Uh, I was actually, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, one of my managers at Toyota, when I was doing the plant in Mississippi, you know, we're around having a big group meeting and I asked a question you know, who's responsible for making sure this happens? And he said, you as the project leader are responsible for making sure that happens. You have these resources, you know, make it happen. That doesn't mean you're doing it, but you are responsible to make sure it happens. Hmm. And that's the, to me, I think that's the primary way to see if somebody's going to accomplish a mission or if you're going to run into a lot of headaches. Awesome, Andy. Well, how can people uh, find you, keep up with you, follow what you're doing? I'm not really active, but I have uh, the Instagram origin underscore Andy. So occasionally I'll post the the new boot pictures or some things going around the factory. So that's the main one. Awesome. I follow you on LinkedIn as well. I don't know. Are you active on LinkedIn? I had been. Um, (laughs) uh, I was trying to do a thing. I need to get it back going. I was trying to do a, a segment on uh, problem solving where each oh, cool. week talk about eight step problem solving and break it down. And I completely failed and it's been a couple months and I haven't finished that. And it's one of those things that's just like, ah, I really need to get back and do that. So occasionally, yes, I'm active on LinkedIn, sure. but at the moment it's just been, it's been a crazy couple months. So that's yeah, been what I've, it's been what I've avoided. Talk about taking ownership. There we go. Let's go. Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks so much for spending time with us. I know I'm better for it. I know people who are watching live right now are better for it. We really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff. Awesome, man. Well, we are so grateful to Andy for his input, his insight, his perspective, and his time. Y'all, one of the things that's really generous on Andy's part is that uh, he recently launched a course on operational excellence, and he's giving our audience a discount of 30% if they would like to purchase that course. So if you want to check out everything related to that, we're going to put the link to it and also the discount code in the show notes of this episode. Hey, also, real quick... If you're connected to Zach Estes on LinkedIn uh, or on any other platform, give him a nice virtual pat on the back and well done because he absolutely crushed the preparation and execution of that interview. Uh, Real quick, before we go, you you probably know this already, but we send out an email every single Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. That's because we think most email isn't worth it. So we wanted to make sure that if we were going to send out an email, it better be worth it. And so every Wednesday, we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can read it in under two minutes. And then we also send a video that details the principle and how it applies to your leadership and your business. If you want to get on that list, you can sign up at the link that's in the show notes of this episode. Y'all know this. We are rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.